Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. We're coming this morning to a passage that really could not be any more important. Now, I know that I probably say that quite often, but it's absolutely true this week because we are looking at an event in history that, quite frankly, is the turning point of all of history. We are looking at the death of Jesus Christ and nothing could possibly be more important And this morning, as we've been doing in our series on John's Gospel, we're going to allow the Apostle John to be our guide. And let me simply say, before we look at this passage, that I think John has two great qualifications that allow him to be the perfect guide. The first great qualification is he was an eyewitness. He saw these events that he writes about with his own eyes. And so John is able to describe them with really vivid, really compelling detail. Second reason John is such a reliable witness, he has had decades upon decades to reflect on the significance of what he's seen. He wrote this book quite some time after Matthew, Mark and Luke were written. And so John has had decades to put things into perspective. He's had decades to ponder how this one day in Jerusalem transforms all of history and all of the world. He was an eyewitness, but he's had time to think. And I think that both of those facts come across really, really clearly in today's passage. There's a vividness in the passage that you only get if the author was actually standing there. And yet, John is able to show us something of how the shockwaves from this event have reverberated through history and have turned the world upside down. So, let's come and look at the passage. Now, I want you to remember that last week we saw Jesus die on the cross. We're told in verse 30 that Jesus said, It is finished. And with that... He bowed his head and gave up or dismissed his spirit. This week we're looking at the immediate aftermath of that and we're going to see three really crucial facts about Jesus' death. The first fact I want us to see this morning is that Jesus really died. Verse 
Jesus really died. Now, we know that Jesus has died already. We see that in verse 30. And in one sense, because we have seen that already in verse 30, everything we have from verse 31 to verse 37, actually, when you think about it, isn't really needed. The story would flow perfectly well without it. And yet, John gives us all of these details. And so the question that each one of us should be asking is, why? Why does John tell us all this? And surely, part of the reason is that John wants to completely remove all doubt in our minds over whether Jesus actually, definitely died. You know, as John thinks about the gospel, as he spends all those years pondering what he's seen, he realises Jesus dying on the cross is absolutely central to the message of the gospel. John realises that if Jesus didn't die, well then there is no good news to share at all. And John knows that there are enemies of the gospel, he knows that they want to cast doubt on the gospel, and he knows that the most effective way they can do that, or at least one of the most effective ways, is to cast doubt on whether or not Jesus actually died on the cross. And so John gives us all these extra details. Let's come and look and see what happened. First of all, we have verse 31. Uh, Notice again the absolute noxious hypocrisy of these Jewish leaders. I mean, that's something that's come across quite a number of times, hasn't it? They have no problem whatsoever with having this innocent man tortured and put to death. They have no problem whatsoever with getting people to make up lies, take an oath, go in the witness stand and point the finger at the Son of God himself. They have no problem with that whatsoever. And yet, even while they're having this innocent man put to death, they're pedantic and they're pernickety about all of these ceremonial rules. I mean, there's something absolutely disgusting about these people, isn't there? They're all holier than thou when it comes to these ceremonial rules. And all the while, they're committing the most diabolical crime the world has ever seen. Notice in verse 31, they have a problem. You see, this is all happening at a very special time of year. It's all happening around the Passover. And remember, the Passover is the feast that Jesus and his disciples celebrated in the upper room. And as this story takes place, the next day is what is called a special Sabbath. It's a holy day. And that's a problem for these religious leaders. Because crucifixion takes a very very long time. Often it could take days for a man to die. It was designed to be as slow and as painful as possible. And the very, very last thing that these leaders want is for any of these three men to still be hanging there when this special Sabbath rolls around. And even if they were to die, 
Well, the body often would be left hanging on the cross, just hanging there so the vultures could come and peck away at it. And the idea is that by leaving the body there to be to be defiled in this way, it sends a message to everybody who sees. But that's the last thing that these men want on this special holy day. And so the religious leaders, they go back to Pilate. They ask Pilate if he would have the legs of these men broken and the bodies taken down. And Pilate agrees. Because as we've already seen, Pilate is far too cowardly to stand up to these leaders. So Pilate gives them exactly what they want. In verse 32, the Roman soldiers come along. They probably would have had an iron mallet with them. And they take a great big swing and they smash the legs of these criminals. And it's absolutely gruesome. It doesn't bear thinking about. But this is what these soldiers would have done whenever they wanted to get a move on. Now, you see, someone who was crucified ultimately died of asphyxiation. You know, if a man was nailed to the cross... He wouldn't be able to breathe because of the way that his body hung. And so every time he needed to take a breath, he'd he'd push himself up on his legs. He would lift himself up so that he's able to fill his lungs. And then he'd drop back down again after he takes his breath. And eventually, the man on the cross, he'd be so worn out from all of the torture he's faced that he wouldn't have the strength to push up on his legs and at that point he wouldn't be able to breathe and that is when he would die. And so you can understand how this mallet would have done its job. You know if you're being crucified and your legs have been smashed to smithereens you can't use them to push yourself up and so you can't breathe. And so in verse 32 Uh, They go to one criminal, then they go to the other. They smash their legs, but notice verse 33. They come to Jesus, and he's already dead. Now, that in itself is unusual. Normally, you wouldn't expect someone to die quite as quickly. But remember verse 30. It's Jesus who is in control. And as soon as his work is finished, what does he do? He gives up where he dismisses his spirit. So the soldiers get to Jesus and they realise he's already dead. If he's already dead, there's hardly any point in swinging that big iron mallet. But they do want to make absolutely sure. So in verse 34, they take a spear and they ram it into Jesus' side. And it's obvious that Jesus is dead. I mean, for one thing, if he was still alive, he would certainly yelp with pain as this spear is thrust into his side. But even more importantly, when they stab him with this spear, what happens? There's a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, there's a fair bit of debate Um, amongst medical experts about what exactly it was that happened here. Um, They all agree that there must have been some sort of 
catastrophic trauma to Jesus and that's why you get this blood and water. And they don't quite agree over exactly what it was that caused it, but, but that doesn't actually matter. Because the one thing that really, really does matter is that Jesus was definitely dead. I mean, these Roman soldiers, they know what they're doing. They know when someone's alive and they know when someone's dead. They've killed plenty of men. They've probably tended to plenty of wounded comrades. They know what they're doing. They're not going to get this wrong. And even if they didn't know what they were doing, and even if Jesus somehow was still clinging on, ramming this spear into his side surely would finish him off. And, and, and even if even if you ignore that fact, I mean, blood and water came gushing out from his side. Surely that puts Jesus' death beyond any doubt whatsoever. He is 100% categorically dead. And John, he knows this because notice verse 35, he has seen it with his eyes. He knows that Jesus had died. And not only does John know it, but he wants you to know it. He wants you to believe that Jesus really died. He wants you to know Jesus didn't just pass out. He wants you to know that Jesus didn't just wake up later on in the tomb. He wants you to know that Jesus really, truly died because it's only by dying that Jesus could pay for sin and Jesus could conquer death. You know, I like how, how J.C. Ryle put it, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but J.C. Ryle said, Little did that Roman soldier know that he was a mighty helper of our faith when he thrust his spear into Jesus' side. John wants you to know Jesus really died. That's the first fact in this passage. Second fact I want us to see is that God was really in control. God was really in control. Now, remember, John has been reflecting on this for decades now. And as he has reflected on this, there's something that he sees very, very clearly. He understands that lying behind the brutality of this Roman soldier is the hand of God himself. Notice what he says in verse 36 and 37. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. When he says these things, what does he mean? Well, two things. First of all, Jesus' legs weren't broken. The two criminals, they had their legs broken, but Jesus didn't. And John tells us that is to fulfill what the Bible says. It says, not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 36. Now, if you have a Bible, um, maybe you'll see uh, the footnotes down at the bottom of the page. There's a, a tiny little B, and that 
footnote is telling us that John isn't just quoting one verse here, he's, he's taking several different verses from the Old Testament and he's showing us how they actually speak about Jesus. And it's two of the verses in particular that I want to mention, uh, Exodus chapter 12 and Numbers chapter 9. Those verses are all about the Passover. And remember, when is all of this happening? It's happening during the Feast of Passover. And, and that, remember, is why the religious leaders are so worked up. That's why they're so insistent that they get these bodies off the cross. Because it's a special Passover Sabbath. What happened at Passover? Well, Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 describe it for us. Every year, Jewish families would slaughter a lamb. And symbolically at least, the blood of that lamb would protect them from the judgment of God. And those two chapters, they describe for us how the lambs are to be chosen. They're to be perfect. They're to be faultless. They are to be completely without blemish. And when the lambs are being slaughtered and prepared, none of the bones are to be broken. For centuries, the Jews had slaughtered these lambs at Passover. And so for centuries, the Jews had to wrestle with this question. How can the blood of an animal possibly save anyone? And the answer, of course, that those with faith would have seen is that the Passover lambs didn't save anyone. What the Passover lambs did do was they pointed forward to the Passover lamb, the one who was absolutely flawless, the one who was without blemish. Who could that be? Well, we've already seen Jesus standing trial, haven't we? We've already seen that no matter how much mud the religious leaders tried to fling at him, none of it would stick. We've already seen that Jesus was absolutely and spotlessly innocent. And now, God is overseeing this whole scene. He's in control, even as these cruel Roman soldiers wield their enormous mallet and he sees to it that not a single one of Jesus' bones is broken. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to know Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's the first promise from the Old Testament that John wants us to think about. But the second one he points to, now we also see in verse, we see it in verse 37, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now that is a reference to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, and we read that earlier in the service. And God has brought this about, not simply so we realize it's coming from that verse but so we can join the dots god doesn't want us to simply take these nine words that 
that John quotes, but God wants us to think about the whole passage in Zechariah. He wants us to think about what comes before and what comes after. And Zechariah chapter 12 is describing a very special time. It's describing a time when God's people look on the one they have pierced and God pours out on them a spirit of grace and supplication. In other words, a time when God is going to change his people's hearts. Zechariah says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. In other words, God is going to cause these people to weep and to wail because they are going to see the one they have pierced and they're going to realise that is my sin that has caused that. That is because of me that he is suffering. But God tells us in Zechariah that weeping isn't going to be entirely bitter because God is going to lead his people to take their tears to him. God is going to lead his people to repent and to plead for forgiveness. This is going to be a time of grace and forgiveness. And of course that happened, didn't it? Only a few weeks after the cross, do you remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost? He drives home this fact that it is because of the people that Jesus was put to death. And do you remember, what do thousands upon thousands of people do on that day? They're heartbroken and they cry out to God to save them. He gives them a spirit of grace and repentance. But it's not just about Pentecost. Because this, of course is something that's still happening today. Every single time a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, every time they realise it is my sin that caused Jesus to be pierced. It is my sin that meant Jesus had to go to the cross. Every time someone admits I can't get rid of my guilt myself. I only have one hope and that is Jesus dying in my place. Every time that happens, this promise from the Old Testament is being fulfilled. And so let me ask you, have you done that? Have you got the message that John is trying to ram home? Have you understood that it is only through Jesus being pierced that your sin can be dealt with. Have you understood this? Or are you trying to get rid of your sin in some other way? God was in control even of the soldier's spear so that you could believe that this is the case. So we've seen two facts. First of all, Jesus 
really died. Secondly, God was really in control. Thirdly, finally and briefly, Jesus really saves. Jesus really saves. So Jesus' side is pierced. And we see in verse 34, out comes this flow of blood and water. Surely that's important, isn't it? John has already connected Jesus to the Passover lamb. Do you remember what did the Jews do at Passover each year? They took the lamb's blood and they painted it on their doorposts. And as it were, God saw the blood and God passed over their houses. You could say it was the blood that saved them. And so John's reminding us here. It is the blood of Jesus that saves us. We see that later on in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or spot. Blood is deeply significant. But what about water? Well again, John wants us to join the dots. He quotes from Zechariah chapter 12. And just five verses after the verse that he quotes, we have this. Zechariah 13.1 On that day... A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. In other words, water is a picture of being made clean from sin. And what did John see with his very own eyes as Jesus' side was pierced? Verse 34, a sudden flow of blood and water. I mean, surely John wants us to join the dots here. And he wants us to see that the fountain that cleanses is Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who cleanses us from sin. John wants us to see that and he wants us to believe it. And so let me say to you this morning, maybe you are terribly aware of your sin. Maybe it haunts you. Maybe even in this last week you have plumbed the depths of sin and you feel terrible and you feel despicable. Maybe for a long time You've been trying to make yourself clean. You have been working. You've been trying to undo the mess that you've caused. And it just isn't working. Here's the good news. By the blood of Jesus, you can be redeemed from the judgment of God. By this fountain of water, you can be made clean. The stench and the stain of sin can be wiped away because of what Jesus 
has done on the cross. All you have to do is turn to him and plead with him to work in your heart. This passage of scripture it should move us, shouldn't it? It should move us as we think of the incredible, terrible suffering of our Saviour on the cross. But as well as that, it should make us thankful, shouldn't it? We should be thankful as we read this passage because Jesus really died. And even in Jesus' death, God was really in control. And because of Jesus' death, we are really saved from our sin. Let's pray.